Good afternoon and welcome to the Cowries and Rice podcast, a perfectly passable China-Africa podcast. Broadcasting not from the heart of global China-Africa research, Washington, D.C. I'm actually broadcasting from Nigeria. This is your host, Nkem Kalu, and I am joined by our co-host, Winslow Robertson, the ailing Winslow Robertson, who is podcasting from the heart of China-Africa research in Washington, D.C. Today's episode is brought to you by our two sponsors, African... Winslow, I didn't ask you how you were. That's rubbish. For <laughs> <laughs> me to do that again. No, we'll, con- we'll continue. I'm doing well. I'm a little ill at the moment. Um, and so Dr. Kalu might be doing the heavy lifting in terms of the talking, but she's Nigerian. I'm sure she can handle talking. Uh, we talk from time to time. <laughs> <laughs> All right, moving along. Today's episode is brought to you by our two sponsors, Africa Development Jobs and the Africa Daily. African Development Jobs is a site run by Nina Oduro that seeks to connect development workers with professional development resources and work opportunities in Africa. On a quest to help diversify development, it highlights the voices and issues of Africans and the diaspora in the field. It is also the best site for finding employment in the development field in Africa that I presently know of. The Africa Daily is an online communications platform currently on hiatus that provides the most up-to-date journalistic and academic information on China-Africa relations. The forum incorporated in the website also facilitates the cultural and informational exchange among the diaspora communities in major Chinese and African cities. Today, we will be discussing a topic that if it's not on the minds of our listeners, now by the end of the show, it really should be. How to get a job as a China-Africa specialist. To that end, we are extremely fortunate to have Dr. Lucy Corkin on the pod. Dr. Corkin is a prestigious class of program at Rand Merchant Bank since 2012. She has worked with the country risk and mining resources credit teams and is currently working with the RMB Westport, a real estate equity investment joint venture focusing on property development in sub-Saharan Africa. She has written numerous articles and chapters and edited volumes on China-Africa relations, but perhaps she is best known for the brilliantly titled Uncovering African Agency, Angola's Management of China's Credit Line. She speaks Afrikaans, Chinese, French, Portuguese, and English. She received her PhD in Politics and International Studies from the School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London, and before that she was an all-star student at Stellenbosch University, knocking out two BAs cum laude in three years, and then an MA in political science in one year. Somehow she got into finance. She's probably the most professionally successful China-Africa person that I know of, short of the people getting money from fat Chinese contractors. Lucy, Dr. Corkin, welcome to the pod. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Wonderful. Well, what are you up to now, Dr. Corkin? How has your book fared also since it was released? So yeah, I mean, I suppose it's been a, a bit of a mixed bag. I've been um, I've been really gratified by the sort of the response that I've had from colleagues um, and friends who've been very interested in my research as it was progressing, and it seems to have been well received um, from from what I've heard. Although I'm sure people are always nice to authors when they talk to them about their books. Um, in terms of it, there's there've been sort of online sales and and hardback sales. I think one of the big challenges, and I think this is something that 
um, you know, perspective authors on not just China-Africa relations, but on anything. Um, it's definitely something to look out for because it's something I wasn't aware of, is to be quite discerning in terms of choosing your publisher. Because I suppose, especially if it's your first book, you're so excited at the prospect of it going into print. You don't really think about the ramifications of the publishing world and how it all works. But unfortunately, my book um, is, is published by an academic an academic publisher and the way that they make their money is that they they bargain on a very small print run and they charge exorbitant prices in order to cover their costs and I'm of the firm belief that if the book was closer to 10 to 15 pounds as opposed to the 60 pounds at which it now resells I think that the sales would be have been a lot higher because of course the people that want to read the book I would hope are students who are you know looking at China Africa questions and don't necessarily have those funds available to fork out for for, for a volume so that's definitely something to look at in terms of you know the, the the publishing process and what the price point of your particular book would be if you were to have it published with a particular publisher because I, I do think that it has it has a huge um, sort of impact and a huge influence on on the circulation of your research and and how it is ultimately received by your audience Wow it's a very valid thing. Dr. Corkin, could you talk about whether you get to use your considerable China-Africa expertise in your current position? Uh, maybe our, our listeners might not know, but you are probably the world's leading expert on Chinese credit finance in Angola and whether people tap you for that. <laughs> That's very kind. Um, so I think that generally speaking, it's I may be I may be wrong here, but I think it's 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 go, it's going to be you're going to be a very lucky person if you walk into a job that taps you for exactly what it is that you happen to be a specialist on. Particularly if, as with my interest, it it is so incredibly niche. Um, and so when I started at the bank, um, one of the easiest the easiest entry points was to be in a political risk analysis role. And so looking at um, the various risks of, of cross-border projects. So any project that happened on the bank's balance sheet that didn't happen to be in South Africa. And so obviously my, my background in, in, in politics, particularly African politics, was very, very useful in this. And even though perhaps um, the China aspect of it didn't necessarily come in directly, one of the, one of the key issues, um, particularly for a South African finance, finance house, is that Chinese capital, Chinese investors, and, and Chinese banks are increasingly competitors uh, for any any bank or any finance house that is looking to to create business um, in um, in you know in, in the case of South Africa, in African countries north of its borders, and in many cases, um, Chinese banks actually have much cheaper dollar funding than 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 their South African counterparts. So it may not necessarily have been looking at a particular China Africa question per se, but more absorbing or incorporating what I knew about about. China and about China's banks and China's financing approach and Chinese investors approach um, in various African countries into the analysis that I made. And interestingly enough, I mean, we, we collaborate on some, in some cases with Chinese banks. In other cases, we are competitors on other deals. But also some of uh, the entities, the African entities to which we lend, have very close relations with various um, Chinese financing houses. So having an insight into how that all worked um, has actually been uh, quite useful. But often, 
in the case of South Africa anyway, um, the, the the China aspect is it's it's acknowledged, but it's not its importance or it's the the fundam the fundamental influence that it is having um, on African the African landscape both politically and economically isn't isn't really grasped or understood. So it's almost I've almost sort of made it a bit of a personal quest to to <laughs> emphasize how important you know Chinese actors be they investors. Or donors or or banks are um, both in the South African landscape, but in, in in other African countries, and constantly looking for ways that I could almost bring that aspect to light. And so I'd often, you know, look for projects with um, for, with units outside of my own in order to try and add value in that way, but also to kind of bring uh, sort of bring that relationship um, sort of more into the light and closer to to the front of people's minds. I think that, at least in understanding what you said, it seems very fortuitous the way in which you've been able to marry your academic endeavors to actual job opportunities um, and employment opportunities. We have, based on our own personal experience walking through, walking, walking the streets of D.C., there's a lot of our listeners who have similar China-Africa expertise and are hoping to have jobs like yours. What sort of advice would you have for our listeners on, on ways to get jobs like yours? Could you walk us through the process? So I, I think I suppose in terms of the finance the finance sector, I think to if to look to get into um, an industry like investment banking or anywhere in in the finance sector, I think that there are a couple of approaches that one can take, particularly with the research um, and with a kind of a politics background. Increasingly. Uh, the, the finance sector is becoming aware of the importance of risk and risk management and risk control. And particularly uh, given sort of the global landscape at the moment, and given the fact that, you know, emerging markets and frontier markets are all the rage because that's where you're going to get your yield and make your money because, you know, the interest rates in, 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 in developed countries are so low at the moment. There is an increasing need for political analysis in, in various sort of countries that were perhaps previously overlooked. Um, everyone is looking at Africa now and developing an Africa strategy. Often it doesn't really get much further than that. They don't, you know, they, it's sort of, yes, we must have an Africa strategy, but, you know, no one's quite really sure how to operationalize this or implement it. So there's huge, huge opportunity just in terms of getting into the risk, sort of a risk analysis role. The challenge however, is that, again, because of, of, of the, the, fi the financial crisis in the last couple of years, banks are becoming more risk averse and they are much less likely or much more um, reticent and much um, more hesitant to take a chance on an employee that has um, an unconventional skill set. So, you know, if you're sitting in a room with, you know, finance experts and chartered accountants, and as a political scientist, um, with a bit of economics, perhaps, you, you know, it's, 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 it's quite an endeavor to convince them that what you have to offer is actually really important in terms of sort of shaping the strategic landscape of, of the banking sector going forward. And that is that is one of the challenges, but often a sort of a, a, a kind of 
a soft landing, as it were, and an easy entry point is looking to get into um, a political risk analysis role because all banks increasingly have this. And although a lot of banks outsource this to organizations such as Business Monitor International or Economic Intelligence Unit, increasingly banks are kind of bringing that kind of knowledge in-house, not only for their own use, but for, for use for packaging um, kind of research materials for their clients. So that's, that's definitely a, sort of a way of getting into it. But the challenge again is because often sort of it's almost like political risk is seen as a bit of a box ticking exercise. So yes, we must sort of jump through these hoops and go through these procedures, but sort of taking on board and incorporating it in, an, in a fundamental and an integral way in terms of how business in frontier markets is approached, that's still something that I think that the banks are, are grappling with because there is a fundamental bias, obviously, uh, against a lot of people that against sort of the, the, the human sciences and the social sciences in, in the banking sector, because essentially it's the people that are the deal makers and the ones that bring in, you know, the money and, um, and increase the bottom line that are seen as the rock stars. Whereas at a political risk level, even though fundamentally risk for banks is everything, if you don't have a concrete risk policy, if you don't have um, controls in place to understand and manage the risk that banks are taking, the banks will fall over. But ultimately, risk is a cost center. It isn't, that isn't the department that makes the money. It prevents the banks from losing money. But I mean, ask the UN, you're never congratulated for the things you prevented, you're only, you know, sort of for the things that you didn't. And so this is, again, another challenge in terms of managing a role in risk, understanding your role and creating sort of uh, communication with the deal makers and essentially making sure that you are understood and respected for the role that you bring and the importance that you bring in terms of sort of political risk analysis and and the, the fundamental sort of necessity of being able to analyze these risks going forward. Oh, man, I just wish people liked the social sciences and humanities more and paid us more. That's all I want. <laughs> well, do you know what, though? I think the one thing that I, I, I really do think that social science... Um, people have above people who have who study for a profession and I've seen it in a lot of my friends is that you know if you study to do business science we, we have a degree in South Africa that's very well recognized and essentially it, it turns out a chartered accountant at the end of a sort of five or six or seven year year sort of process you know when you start as a freshman or as a first year student at university you have a path that is quite structured um, with very little choice, and you know what you're going to be at the end of the day. So all that doubt and uncertainty is removed. Whereas as a social sciences student, every single day, you are wondering what on earth it is that you're going to be doing with yourself and your life, because you're not training, you're not really training for any particular role. You are training because you love what you do and research and you're learning research skills and uh, skills and, and, and developing an analytical mind. So whereas you don't necessarily have a prescribed endpoint, you constantly have to have this existential crisis, which I think makes you fundamentally a much more flexible and adaptable person because you know that it's going to be quite tough at the end. You're not just going to walk into a job. You're going to have to really go out there and, 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 and fight for it. And while that is a challenge, I think, you know, in terms of the kind of the, the, the sort of the sort of street smart skills that you learn as a result, 
um, I think is incredibly important. And also because you've had to fight for it for so long, when you do end up in a role, you really want it. Whereas, you know, if you wake up seven or eight years later and you realize that you're in a profession and it really didn't crack, isn't what you thought it would crack up to be, then, you know, you, you have a bit of a challenge. Whereas if you're constantly interrogating this career thing, you know, from, from the word go, I think it does really equip you with, you know, with another set of, another set of skills that, you know, other, other graduates might not necessarily have. Should people studying China-Africa relations try to get non-academic China-Africa jobs? Uh, this existential crisis, which is uh, perhaps an advantage, is that something that, that people should actively pursue? So I think it, it, all, it, it really depends on, on the person. I think it, it, because, for instance, I suppose, I mean, I, I love... I love being an academic. I loved being an academic, and I, I still do write and, and research, you know, if and when I, I have the time. You do write but, and research a lot. You have a lot of publications <laughs> to your name. But, um, but, but I think that it's, it's about where you, you sort of see yourself fitting in. I mean, I think, you know, there is an incredible need for academic pursuit of knowledge in this sphere because it is something that is growing and, and morphing and you know it the the fate and and the future of you know of all africans is is you know is tied up in this relationship because china you know is one of the largest economies in the world and it is definitely shaping the global you know the globe the globe as we as as we know it um and, and as a result, you know, the rest of the world is, is sort of looking at this relationship as well. And so the need to push the research agenda is incredibly important. But without that research finding its way into practical everyday life, you know, they, it, without that sort of bridge, they, you know, there's there's... The, the research becomes less relevant. So, you know, you do need practitioners and you need them at the policy-making level, you need them at the entrepreneurial level, you need them at the corporate level, you need them everywhere. So I think it really depends on where you, do you, is, is research your passion? Is that what you want to do for the rest of your days? Or do you want to try something else sort of in a, in a different sector or, and this is what I find so exciting and it's, it's particularly, it's, it's particularly, um, practiced in, in Washington, D.C., and I have a huge respect for the way that, you know, you can be an academic and then go into government and then go into the corporate sector and then do the whole cycle all over again, like a revolving door. Um, and and it's, it, it, you, you shouldn't necessarily feel married to a particular sector, whether it's, you know, government or non-government or, or, or academic or non-academic. I think that there's a body of knowledge that, by virtue of what it is, um, and a skill set that you have that makes you fun fundamentally that flexible person. And it's about where you are in your career and where you are in your life at a certain point in time that, that sort of drives, you know, where you want to end up inserting yourself. I think that we've had just a really wonderful conversation on opportunities and, um, and, and ways to apply yourself into seeking and finding opportunities as it pertains to China, Africa and positions there. Um, Dr. Corkin, is there anything else that you'd like to add? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think, you know, there's, there's so many different ways of looking at, at sort of, um, you know, job opportunities and what you want to do. And I, I mean, I, I remember, you know, when I, when I finished my, my master's, I was so worried about what, what it was that I was going to end up doing that I pretty much sort of, you know, you apply to absolutely everything that you read in the newspaper or online that you think your CV sort of vaguely approximates 
and you do all sorts of different things. And I, I mean, you know, I think it's important to sort of, you know, not necessarily if you have, you know, if you are a China Africa researcher, uh, you know, and that's what you want to do. Don't restrict yourself to to what you think you will be good at or because I mean when I when I left university after my master's I mean I ended up working in a in an in an basically a corporate image management consultancy which was something essentially I was a spin doctor it only lasted a year but it was a very interesting experience and that's something that I never thought that I would be involved in but Funnily enough, it you know all it does is add to your experience and add to your knowledge, you know. And after that job, then I went back into research, and I was a full time researcher and project manager at a, at a research center. And then after you know finishing the PhD, and now I find myself you know at an investment bank, which is a different journey. And I think it's it's basically just about sort of you know discovering what is out there, and just because it doesn't it doesn't necessarily you know. It's not what you want to end up doing. Get your foot in the door because, you know, the job market is so competitive these days. And I think it's it's all about, you know, you don't necessarily have to be there for the rest of your life, but get your foot in the door, get out there, build your networks, because that's the most powerful thing that you can do, you know, in terms of finding a career that that, that works for you. And keep on looking for the China-Africa angle because I'm obviously biased because I've been looking through that lens, that pair of lenses for way too long. But the way I see it, there is always a China-Africa angle. It doesn't matter what you do, because particularly in the case of China, I mean, China's influence and the way China's growing and shaping, shaping our world, you know, you can, you can see that influence everywhere. And if you happen to be an African, then, you know, there's your relationship right there. It doesn't matter what you do. That, you know, that, that knowledge and that framework is always going to be there. So I think it's, it's about getting your foot in the door and then just look, you know, not stopping to look for the opportunities and looking to see what you can do and how you can shape where it is that you are um, and where you, and, and get to where you're going. Because, you don't just arrive at the perfect job. It is always a journey and it's always hard work and that doesn't stop. So it's just about sort of, you know, giving yourself, you know, giving, getting yourself that foot in the door and then, and then just, you know, continuing to believe in, you know, the, the, the skill set that you bring to the table and the fact that you will be unique because China-Africa relations is a fairly new discipline. Um, and it is, it is, but it is a fundamental sort of, sort of, I don't know, body of thought or knowledge that, 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 you know, the rest of the world does need. Amen to that. <laughs> Do you have any recommendations for our listeners? So the one recommendation is sort of, I suppose, China related. And the other recommendation will be um, South African related because today is, is Freedom Day and we're celebrating our, our 20 years of our 20 years of, of, of being a democratic country, which is very exciting. So the first recommendation is a restaurant in central Beijing called, uh, in English, the Red Capital Club. And the, the thing that makes this particular restaurant um, so fascinating is because it's an old courtyard house, so a Suhuyan, that has been converted into a kind of shrine of communist era memorabilia. The owner of the restaurant has this phenomenal collection that ranges from 
um, you know, communist uh, propaganda ballet statuettes to photographs of um, of Mao and the Dalai Lama on the wall to books uh, and armchairs and, and tobacco pipes that were owned by very illustrious communist party members and is complete with a bulletproof limousine that the Russians gifted to Mao um, in the 1950s. And you can go there and see all of these phenomenal things. It's like being in someone's private museum collection. And then you can also be treated to delicious things like uh, the four modernizations beef and the great leap forward fried pork. So it's it's definitely a must if 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 you haven't um, if you haven't already been there. Um, it's it's quite a it's quite a it is quite an experience. And yes, um, on the South African side, I've been I've been racking my brains to um, to to think of of um, of a recommendation that that sort of does South Africa's progress um, as a democratic country, you know, um, justice. And to be quite honest with you, Winslow, I can't think of anything that really does that. I've been trying really hard. So I can I can recommend a couple of I could I could I suppose recommend a couple of books. Um, I could recommend. Um, I could recommend sort of food, but I'm just trying to think of something that sort of sums up sums up our whole our whole country. And I I can't seem to do that at that moment, which I feel really bad about because we're about to go to the polls on the seventh of May, which is which is really exciting. Um, and I'm actually just not sure what I can recommend. And I really feel that it's my patriotic duty to do so. And I'm not sure what I should recommend. So I hope you, I'm hoping you're going to edit this bit of the podcast out. But I, I, actually can't, I actually can't, I can't think of. You know how the ANC has those um, Mandarin language vote for us things yes. in South Africa? Yes. You, you you tweeted about it, but if if you have an article or a photo, I or maybe an explanation behind it, that might be something that our listeners might find cool. Okay, well, I mean, I haven't I haven't actually written I haven't actually written anything about it, but I was just Yun Park from the uh, the China African Network. Actually, she sent the photograph, and she said she asked um, she actually asked. Um, she sent it to a couple of us and said, "Look, can anyone translate this? Because I'd love to know. I'd love to know what it means." And um, I sort of a lot of those words I, I didn't know, but I looked them up, and it, it it was actually quite fascinating. It was sort of it was basically saying, "Hand in hand, we go together towards the future," you know. And you know, if you want to have prosperity in South Africa, you know, vote ANC in the twenty fourteen elections, um, which is is sort of, and it is. It's 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 really fascinating to to see that. Um, you know that 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 particular section of of our population is being is being targeted. And interestingly enough, a couple of weeks ago, just on the back of this, um, Chinese people have officially been been recognised as black, which is really important in South Africa. You know, in 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 the context of South Africa, because if you're recognised as black, it basically means that you're recognised as being previously disadvantaged, and so therefore, you know you are eligible to, to, to benefit from, from employment equity uh, policies, which is, which is a really big deal. Um, and it contrasts quite strongly with um, a couple of years ago when um, the then chairman of the, the, um, the China Association in South Africa actually took the government of South Africa to court because uh, Chinese people, Ch uh, Ch um, South African-born Chinese people, 
were also um, discriminated against during apartheid. But in the new South Africa, they were not recognized as having been so. And so he actually took the government to court to ensure that the Chinese people would be recognized as being previously disadvantaged. And they came to a kind of compromise where you were only recognized as being previously disadvantaged as a South African born Chinese if you were um, born before 1994. And that basically meant that about, I think it was a total of about 15,000 people were were given sort of, you know, previously disadvantaged status. And and now it appears that 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 ruling has actually been extended to all South African-born Chinese citizens. So it's it's very interesting, you know, sort of to have that that sort of legislation or that that sort of um, legal ruling on the back of these um, ANC posters that are in Chinese. And it's 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 an incredibly interesting interesting development because it obviously shows the importance that the the ruling party is has attributed to um, our you know our SABC or our South African-born Chinese uh, communities. Wow. That was a seriously really cool... really cool. Yes. I feel like we should do a separate pod on that completely. Oh, Dr. Corkin is going to be on the pod. We need to find, we need to find <laughs> an SABC. Oh, yeah, yeah. We got to... Which one I think of SABC, I think of South African Broadcasting Corporation. Because, you know... Well, except, well, pretty much you know, it's, it's so funny because you know how they call, them, they call them ABCs in America, like and like American Broadcasting Corporation. And so in yeah. South Africa, we have SABCs. And there's a big joke because... So South African Broadcasting Corporation has three channels. So you have SABC 1, 2, and 3. And so yeah. basically, if you're, if you're a first-generation South African-born Chinese, you're SABC 1. If you're a second-generation-born... Uh, South African board Chinese, your SABC two, and then the same the same logic applies for SABC three. So it's 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 actually quite funny. They've almost taken that to the next level in terms of the the parallels. That's awesome. Correctly. <laughs> well, in the interest of time, because we're going to try and make this the shortest podcast that we've done, let's um, move on to the next section. Before we sign off, how do people find you on the interweb? Do you have a website or a Twitter account that you'd like to share with us? So I've got a Twitter account. It's very easy. It's at Lucy Corkin, L-U-C-Y-C-O-R-K-I-N, um, all one word, all lowercase. And I'm on LinkedIn. Um, I find that sort of Twitter is kind of, um, it's like blogging for the, for the, you know, for those with a, with a very small attention span. So it suits me down to the ground. Wonderful. Winslow? We found on Cowrie's rice.blogspot.com and my Twitter handle is at Winslow underscore R and yeah if you want cool China Africa stuff the blog or the Twitter account is, is where it's at right now people have been reaching out to me on LinkedIn so Winslow Robertson on LinkedIn as well I guess wonderful great and I and Tom Kalu can be found on Twitter at ntomekalu and um, when I do actually start blogging again Thanks to the transition, I will be blogging on com as well, as well as the other one. But that's about <laughs> it for today's episode. Fantastic. <laughs> so, we would like to thank Dr. Corkin for joining us this evening from London. Not from, are you from London? From London. Yes. I'm as from well Joburg. Actually, I'm, sitting, I'm sitting in Joburg. Okay. What? Oh, I thought you exactly. were in, in South Africa. I thought you were in London. No, I'm in Joburg. <laughs> Gosh darn it. That's why we got that again. Then. Timing <laughs> yeah, I'm an idiot. Wonderful. Oh, whatever. All right. 
We'd like to thank Dr. Corkin for joining us this evening from Johannesburg. It will those African development jobs in the Africa Daily. This podcast can be found on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. We have applied to put it up on the BlackBerry Network. And if you have any recommendations about where else you should post it, we are definitely listening. We hope to reach more media platforms in the future. We would also like to thank Mighty Mike, the Pulse Recordings, for composing the theme song. And thank you, dear listener, for giving us your time. Take care. <laughs>